Thank you for that wonderful song. It does fit really well with what we're going to be talking about today, as the songs usually seem to. And we love EWG for many reasons, and I think uh, worship through song is one of them every week. We also love it for the friendships that we get to develop over the year, new friends, old friends, and then that accountability that we get from other women that are wanting to know the Lord better and study his word together. And it's so unique. Um, every week when we get to, on our own, look at those lessons, I think there's the what I call a joy of discovery when we get to see the Lord in his word, and we just are constantly seeing new things, even though they're not new. They've always been there, but they're new to us as we discover them again in his word. And then when we come together, we get to share that. And so in our group times, it's so special because you just get to hear what other people have been learning and what stood out to them. Um, so we love EWG. It's a unique ministry, and I'm so thankful to be a part of it. And this is one of my favorite years. I say that every year, but it's still true. I love the Gospel of John. It's probably my favorite. No offense to the other three, but I just there's something so special about it and so personal to me with John. And we've had such a wonderful spring uh, semester so far, looking at the farewell discourse and getting to look at those truths about the Trinity abiding in us, and that's so strengthening for each of us. And now, though, we get to take what I would say is kind of a dramatic turn to the action, a return to the action in John's gospel. The narrative begins again. And this is what we would call kind of the third section of John, the passion narrative in 18 through the rest of the book. And it's so fitting that we are coming to this this week because it is Passion Week. So it's almost like it was planned, Um, but it was planned. Um, So... Today we're looking at the arrest um, and the trials of Jesus, and then on Friday, when all of us come back, we're going to hear um, more about the crucifixion of our Lord, and then of course Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. So it really is just a favorite week for many of us um, Christians, for sure, that love remembering these things and getting to just bolster our joy once again. Much of what we've seen in John, and definitely all of the farewell discourse, is unique to John's gospel. So it's not in the synoptics in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Um, It's brand new material. However, what we get to today is covered in all the Gospels. And we would know why that is, right? Because it's dealing with the um, trials and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. It's that culminating work of Christ in bearing the sins of man and satisfying the justice of God and thereby providing for reconciliation between man and God. And that victory is attested by the resurrection, which we're going to celebrate again on Sunday. But even though they all address these same events and testify to the same work and affirm those same truths, when we compare John's account with the synoptics, we get a very unique portrayal or a unique perspective, uh, one which is consistent with John's message and his unique emphasis in his gospel. So to kind of frame again what we're going to be examining. I think it would be good for us to once again remind ourselves of John's purpose statement. We've read it many times, John 20, 30 through 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. 
that truth that we are continually to believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God that dominates John's gospel as he shows us pictures of Christ in order to motivate discipleship. But within that, within John, uh, there seems to be this unique kind of perspective and emphasis in that the way he expresses that story of Jesus seems to emphasize his eternal uh, power and his divine authority as the Son of God. Nothing happens to Jesus that is apart from his own divine purposes. And to set our minds on that and to see that, I want to remind us of a few key passages that we've already looked at this year. All the way back in the prologue, in his introduction to Jesus, John writes in John 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. This emphasis on Jesus as the Christ, who cannot be overtaken by darkness because he is the almighty Son of God and contains all authority from the Father, seems to color the whole gospel of John. There's another passage that shows us Christ's authority in John 10, starting in verse 17. He, Jesus says, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it away from me, but from myself I lay it down. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. Jesus' death is something he controls. He lays his life down on his own initiative. And then there's one last passage we'll look at. Um, when he's looking to the hour of his crucifixion, Jesus declares in John 12, 31, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. So Jesus' death means victory over Satan, and not defeat. So John is already laying this groundwork that Jesus is in control and that he's victorious. What's interesting, though, is that this is the same hour that Luke, in Luke twenty-two fifty-three, 53, um, we read, Jesus tells the Jewish leaders, this hour and the power of darkness are yours. So while it is indeed the hour of darkness where the evil powers are enacting their wickedness, that doesn't overcome the light of the world. John emphasizes in his gospel that Jesus is the divine Lord. He's one with the Father. He's empowered by the Spirit, and he has absolute dominion over the events of the world and the salvation of his sheep. So that even the hour of darkness cannot overtake him. And this is really highlighted in our uh, text today, the narration of Jesus' arrest, his trials, and his sentencing leading up to the crucifixion. And that's what we're going to look at today. And we are going to be jumping around a little bit within our passage. And as we do that, we're going to look at four ways that Jesus, the Christ, and the Son of God manifests his divine authority. We're going to see that first in his control over his captors, second in his protection of his disciples, and then in his command over his hour, and then lastly, in his advance of his kingdom. And as we look at this theme, my prayer has been for all of us that we're going to be strengthened to trust Jesus and motivated to follow and to be faithful disciples. So let's look at the first way, and that's in his control over his captors. So open your Bibles and look at John 18, 
And I'm going to read the first 11 verses to start us off. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples to the other side of the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden into which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often gathered there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing there. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these go their way, in order that the word which he spoke would be fulfilled. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and caught off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? So this first scene takes place in the garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus went with his disciples, as was his custom, and he prayed. And this is where I think an examination of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is really interesting, because did you notice what is not in John? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record what happens in the garden before Judas arrives. Matthew and Mark devote 11 verses to this. Luke gives us eight verses that picture how Jesus was in deep distress, grieved to the point of death, in great turmoil, and he was praying to the Father that, if possible, the cup might pass from him. Luke even adds that an angel was sent to minister to strengthen Jesus, and that Jesus' sweat became like drops of blood in anticipation of the cross. And then we get to the Gospel of John, and John gives us one verse. And all it tells us is that Jesus went to the garden. So before we start to kind of panic, thinking, why did John leave this out, this deeply moving depiction of Jesus' grief in looking at the cross? We have to remember, again, that John was the last gospel written about 30 years after the other, so we, he knew we already had those descriptions. Further, John has already given us a glimpse into the suffering of Jesus in anticipation of the cross back in John 12, verse 27. He said, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. So I think the best way to understand John's exclusion of the garden experience is to see that at this point in John's gospel, he's moving us away from Jesus' suffering towards the glory that is also coming with the cross, which Austin explained so well to us Last week, when he was talking about um, Jesus' anticipation of glory, in John 17, verse 5, Jesus says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So John is choosing not to showcase the turmoil and the grief of Jesus here, not because it wasn't true, but because he wants to keep his reader's eyes focused on the fact that Jesus was completely sovereign over the events taking place and that they were part of the plan to bring glory to the Father and the Son. And you can see that in the way the arrest scene is written. Jesus is still the one in control. 
Um, it's a reversal of what we'd expect with someone that's being arrested by a Roman detachment of up to 600 men, plus officers from the Jewish uh, leaders. He's still portrayed as the one who's the initiator of all that transpires. You can see that in verse 4. Who's the one that went forth? It's Jesus. He goes forth to this crowd and he asks them, whom do you seek? And I think we're really so accustomed to reading this that it doesn't seem odd to us. But if you stop and think about it, it is remarkable that the one who's to be the captive is the one who's actually seeking out his captors and questioning them. And the soldiers obey. They say, Jesus, the Nazarene. And I love what comes next. I think all of us do. Jesus declares, I am he, or maybe more uh, specifically, he says, I am. And students of John's gospel, which is all of us here, we're familiar with this. Jesus is once again asserting his authority and his identity as eternal God. He's connecting back to passages in the Old Testament like Exodus 3.14 and Deuteronomy 32.39 and then all over the second half of Isaiah and other places where God reveals his character and himself as the eternally existent God. And if that declaration weren't enough for us to see, uh, just in case we missed the point, the result is documented for us in verse 6. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. And I like to picture that in my mind. There's hundreds of armed soldiers and the elite uh, of Judaism, and they're unable to stand against the words of Jesus declaring his identity and his character. And that action reminds us that Jesus's arrest doesn't signify a lack of power. It actually demonstrates the possession of all power. Well, at least one of his disciples wasn't so compliant. In verses 10 and 11, we read that Peter, who someone allowed to have a sword, draws it and he cuts off the ear of the high priest's slave, whose name, we're told, was Malchus. Now, again, I like to picture this. If this were an action movie, like the kind I sometimes watch, uh, you know what would have happened. The moment Peter did that, there would have been fighting everywhere. Um, and most likely, because of the numbers, the Roman soldiers would have captured or killed Jesus and his disciples. But that's not what happened. Why? Because Jesus is still in control, and his eyes are set on the cross, and so nothing, not even a misguided disciple, is going to hinder that. Luke twenty-two fifty-one tells us that Jesus actually heals Malchus's uh, ear. But in John, all we read is Jesus's response to Peter. Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? When we look at the Old Testament, many of the prophets, we get an understanding of what the cup is signifying, and it's associated with suffering and with the wrath of God. One text to look at, um, you can write this down, is Jeremiah 25, 15, because it's a good example of this. Jeremiah is giving this condemning um, prophecy, and he says, For thus Yahweh, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. So while the other gospel writers record Jesus petitioning to the Father that the cup of his wrath and the suffering to come might pass from him, John records Jesus' resolve to do the will of God and submit entirely and without wavering to drink the cup. And there's an application for us in that. If you have trusted Jesus for salvation, and if you've placed 
your faith in his work of atonement on the cross to pay for your sins, you won't ever have to drink the cup of God's wrath. Jesus drank it for you to save you from it. And this should cause your hearts to overflow with gratefulness to him for drinking the cup of God's wrath. And it should also motivate us to follow him and to say that whatever the Lord wills, that is what we're going to do. And we'll accept that from his hand. So there's a second way that we get to see Jesus, um, that Christ and the Son of God manifest his authority, and that's in his protection of his disciples. And this is not new to us. We've seen this throughout the gospel. A few passages to note, John 6, 39, Jesus said, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. And then a little bit later in John 10, 27, he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then again, from our text last week, John 17, 12, he said, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Now, in what we read today, we see Jesus continually to faithfully protect his disciples, even in the midst of their unfaithfulness. If we look back at the opening verses of John 18, in verses 4 and 7, Jesus asks the same question. He says, whom do you seek? And the soldiers answer, Jesus the Nazarene. By twice forcing that group to declare that they're seeking Jesus, He's forcing them to acknowledge that they have no reason to take his disciples. Jesus connects this to the fulfillment of John 17, 12, the verse I just read in 18, 8 through 9. He answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. And I think of this, we see that Jesus' physical protection of his disciples at this point, while he himself is at his physical weakest, causes us to see the unstoppable power of Christ and that no human figure or institution or even the powers of darkness can break his hold on his own. And this should cause us to trust Jesus for our ultimate and eternal salvation. The Lord does not always choose to keep us from physical harm or difficulty or trial. Often he does, but not always. Yet we know it's not because he can't but because it's in some way good for us. And he's always with us in those times. He's protecting our salvation. So even if his deliverance from a trial might ultimately be through death, that's still truly deliverance because then we are ushered into his presence forever. I want to look a little bit more at Jesus and Peter because it's interesting and it's personal to us. Um, The fact that Jesus predicted Peter's three denials all the way back in John 13 doesn't make it any more pleasant to read. It alternates back and forth between what Peter is doing and what Jesus is doing. And it's such a contrast. Look at verse 17, 18, 17. And I'm going to read through verse 27. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, are you not also one of this man's disciples? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. 
The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. Behold, they know what I said. And when he said this to them, one of the officers standing nearby gave Jesus a slap, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You're not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Peter is asked a question in verse 17. You are not also this man's disciple, are you? And he denies it. And then the text tells us that he warms himself. He comforts himself by a fire. Meanwhile, in verse 19, Jesus is also asked questions about his teaching and his disciples. But unlike Peter, Jesus doesn't shrink away from his responsibility and does not seek comfort over truth. Instead of warmth from a fire, Jesus is physically struck by one of the officers. But again, he doesn't back down from his protection, but rather points to the truth of his words. Again, John contrasts Jesus with Peter, who in verse 25, he reminds us, is warming himself. And then Peter has two more opportunities to declare his allegiance to Christ and to testify of the truth, and he takes neither. His fear and his relationship with Jesus for the sake of his own comfort and protection are both sobering and they're familiar to us. When I read these verses, I feel convicted because I see myself in Peter and remember those times when I was given an opportunity to speak truth and to declare the greatness of Christ, and I chose to either keep silent or just talk about something else. But as convicting as these verses are for us and should be, they also motivate us to turn our eyes to the one who doesn't fail. Though we are weak and we are going to be tempted to take shortcuts, and sin to hold on to the comforts of this world, rather than allegiance to Christ, he doesn't fail. And he's not moved by the failings of those he has purchased to just cast us aside. I think one of the great comforts for us in this is seen in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I love what one commentator Craig Keener wrote about this. He said, whereas Jesus suffers for Peter, Peter disowns Jesus and his own responsibility. If Peter is one Johannine paradigm for discipleship, it is only because the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep to restore them to the right way. We can all, I think, relate to failure in our commitment to Jesus But as long as we have breath, we have opportunity to change by the power of the Spirit working in us and continue to publicly declare Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior, and then to experience the joy that comes when we show our allegiance to our Savior. Well, we have one third way we can see Jesus' authority in our text, and that's in his command over his hour. Another thing that's not new to us, 
Um, We have read this repeatedly in John's gospel, that Jesus' hour had not yet come. We saw that back in John 2.4 and 7.30 and 8.20. But then when we got to John 12, verse 23, we read Jesus say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then from that point, the focus is on his coming death on the cross and his resurrection. Timing matters. Jesus would not be crucified until it was the perfect time according to the purposes of God. And we get a powerful display of Jesus's control over timing in our passage, and that's with the mention of Passover. Three times Passover is mentioned in our text. It's mentioned in 1828, 1839, and 1914. Passover is mentioned almost as an aside or as an explanatory note, but it's significant. In 1828, this first instance, Passover is the reason why the Jews would not enter the praetorium. That's the Roman governor's official residence. It says that they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter in the praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover. It's mentioned in 1839, the second time, uh, Passover is connected to a tradition that, by, that Pilate references of releasing a prisoner for the Jews of Passover. Um, he said, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you w- wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? And then the third time in 1914, Passover is kind of a, a marker of time. It tells us when Pilate gave that mocking pronouncement, behold your king to the Jews, It was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. Now, there's significance to the fact that Jesus was to be crucified at the same time that the Passover lambs would have been slaughtered. Let's do a little bit of background, just a little bit, on Passover. It's that yearly feast that Israel had to commemorate God's deliverance uh, for Israel from the hand of the Egyptians. The very first Passover is recorded in Exodus 12, Uh, You remember the 10th plague that God brought on Egypt to show his power and to bend Pharaoh to his will and release Israel was that he was going to kill all of the firstborn in the land. And the only way for the Hebrews, the people of Israel, to escape that plague for their own families was that they were to take a lamb, and it was a year-old spotless male lamb, and they were to kill it, and they were to put its blood over the uh, top of the door and on the sides so that God would pass over them. And for those who obeyed and who followed God's instruction and whose dwellings were marked by the blood of the Passover lamb, God didn't kill their firstborn, but he mercifully delivered them, brought them out of Egypt, and he made them his people. Now, these three notes of Passover must be read in light of John 1, 29, where John the Baptist sees Jesus, and what does he say? He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was the sacrificial lamb who would die to fully and to completely take away the sins of all who would believe in him. Whereas the other Passover lambs remembered God's deliverance for his people, Jesus actually removes the sin because he pays the penalty for that sin in his perfect and his sinless body. And there is an obvious irony here. The Jewish leaders were keeping the ceremonial aspects of the law, while at the same time they're condemning and they're rejecting the one who fulfilled the law and the one to whom the law and the feasts pointed. A commentator wrote about this. 
He said on that Friday, which was the great feast of Jewish liberation, Jesus himself became the great liberator, releasing the bondage of his enslaved people, not merely from the wrong king, Pharaoh, but from the ruling bondage of depravity and death. For this reason, the church refers to this Friday as Good Friday. And the celebration no longer involves the preparation of lambs, for such lambs have now been made obsolete. Jesus has become the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the entire world. And these truths about Christ's command over his hour, that he's not going to let that come before it's time, and even down to the aligning of his hour with Passover, can have many resulting applications for our lives. I think an obvious one for me is to see that timing matters to the Lord. I think we often become frustrated or despondent when things don't go the way we want or when they're not happening as quickly as we'd like. How many times have you been tempted in your prayers to give up praying for something because you say to yourself, well, if it hasn't happened by now, never will. Well, that's faithless and it's short-sighted. If Jesus so commands the hour of his own death, doesn't he command everything that happens in our lives, the details, and when those things happen and if they happen? And I love looking at this concept because it's so strengthening to see and to remember that God has perfect timing. And we can praise him and we can rest in him now, even as we await whatever it is that he has for us. We have one more way in this text that we get to see the authority of Jesus on display and that's in his advance of his kingdom. Beginning at 1828, and then all the way through 1915, Jesus is undergoing a series of trials, first by the Jewish religious leaders, and then second by the Roman political leaders. And to get a kind of a comprehensive understanding of all those trials, we have to put all four gospels together. And we find that there seem to be three trials for each phase, three for the Jewish and three for the Roman phase. That should be on the slide. So after the third Jewish phase, the formal gathering of the Sanhedrin, which we read of in the synoptics, the Jewish leaders bring Jesus to Pilate. Pilate's the Roman governor over Judea. Um, and they bring him to Pilate at the Praetorium, which is the official residence of the governor. Let's do, again, a little bit of context for this, a little bit of background. Why do the Jews need to bring Jesus to Pilate? Well, The Jews, though they are the leading religious entity, they are a conquered people, and they're limited by the powers of Rome. So they have a problem. Obviously, they want to kill Jesus, but to do so could be seen as insurrection against Rome. And if there's one thing that you remember uh, the Roman Empire sought to squash, it was rebellion. So peacekeeping in their conquered regions in the Roman Empire was of utmost importance. Pilate is the Roman official who was installed as the governor over Judea, and that's a high position. Uh, The ancient historian Josephus, along with a few others, record that Pilate was not a nice guy. He was brutal, he was greedy, he was unjust, and he seems to only have complied with the Jews in so much as it gave him some kind of a benefit, some kind of an advantage. So you have to understand that the Jewish leaders and Pilate are not on friendly terms, They don't agree just for the sake of agreement. They both have to see some kind of a benefit for themselves. Later on in our text, you're going to see the Jews use the phrase friend of Caesar in 1912 to manipulate Pilate 
warning that if he let Jesus live, he was no friend of Caesar. And that title actually has a unique meaning in that time period. It doesn't simply mean that um, Pilate was on the same side as Caesar, so they were friends, or it doesn't have the casual meaning that sometimes we use of friendship. Friend of Caesar refers to something known as royal friendship or friendship with a king. Um, Those in that group were integrated into a royal circle of the king where they had access to him, and he trusted them as his representatives. So to be a friend of Caesar was to be immensely elevated, and that's not something you would want to lose, and you're going to try and protect that status. So I think that sets the stage for what we read in verse 29. Pilate asks the Jews pointedly, what charge do you bring? And they say, we wouldn't be here if this man weren't an evildoer. Pilate says to them, well, then take him yourself and try him. And you can feel the tension building there. There's this delicate relationship between the Jewish authorities who had much power over the people uh, of Judea with the Roman governor who's eager to keep the peace but also wants to maintain his own dominance over the people. Each side is trying to leverage the other and manipulate the other to get the results they want. Let's look at Pilate's question to Jesus because he clearly knows something of who Jesus is accused of being because he asks him in verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus, instead of answering Pilate's question, asks one of his own. And from this dialogue, you see again that Jesus is speaking on his own terms. In verse 36, Jesus declares the distinction between his kingdom when he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. When Jesus declares that his kingdom is not of this world, he's not denying a future eschatological earthly kingdom that extends into the new heavens and the new earth. What he is saying is that his kingdom does not have its source or its origin from the earth. So Jesus' kingdom is not in the same realm or in the same dominion, and it's not on the same level as earthly kingdoms. However, though the earthly reign of Jesus is not yet, he brings people into his kingdom now, even if you remember back to Nicodemus in John 3. Further, though the kingdom on earth is not yet established, the king of that kingdom has come. And in verse 37, Pilate, again not seeming to get the point, says, so you are a king. And Jesus answers, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Jesus is king, but the inauguration of his kingdom comes in a dramatic reversal of expectation because it doesn't come through military might, but it comes through suffering. Pilate, rather than hear the truth of Jesus and submit to him as king, questions the very concept of truth. And there's another irony that's presented to us who know John's gospel and who remember the I am statement of John 14, 16. When Pilate says, what is truth? We think, who is truth, right? The one standing before Pilate is the way, the truth, and the life. And entrance into the kingdom doesn't come apart from him. Keep reading. In 19, we'll read 1 through 15. Pilate then took Jesus and flogged him. And when the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. 
And they were coming to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and were giving him slaps in the face. And Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he became more afraid. And he entered in the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate kept seeking to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. As Pilate and his soldiers abuse Jesus, they mock him as king of the Jews, something which they clearly conceived as laughable. Yet the irony for those of us who know Christ and who love God's word see so clearly is that what these men declared in mockery that Jesus is king, he is in reality and in truth. He is the king of David's line, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, which we read in 2 Samuel 7. And one day, every knee, including the knees of those currently mocking him, will bow before him. And I don't know about you, but when I read this scene, after seeing 18 chapters of Jesus, seeing his eternal status as God and with God, seeing his signs that attest to his deity, seeing his love and his care and his protection of his own, seeing his commitment to always do what is pleasing to the Father, seeing his words of power, words that even bring soldiers to the ground. Reading this passage brings a sense of what I would say fear or awe. And I think that's appropriate for a few reasons. First, we who know God's word know that he is holy and God is not mocked. Second, we know that the sin that drove Jesus to suffer like this is our sin. So we bear burden. And then thirdly, it's because this description of the mistreatment of our Savior causes us to abound in thankfulness for him, for taking away and for taking our sin on himself, for silently enduring mistreatment and scorn from the world and ultimately bearing the wrath of God on the cross as our substitution for us so that we could be healed by his wounds and that so we could be welcomed as children of God. Well, the Romans mock the idea of Jesus as king. And what is the Jews' response in verse 15? With a thirst for his blood, they cry out, crucify him. 
we have no king but Caesar. Rather than bow to God's appointed king, they reject him and they claim allegiance to the Roman emperor. I think this stunningly pictures the words of John 1, 10 through 11. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. As sobering as this passage is, and as much as it does move our hearts to see our Lord treated this way and to see him endure such suffering for our sake, we know that God's glory is on display in the hour of Jesus' death and his resurrection because by his atoning work, he brings and he saves men and women and he ushers them into his kingdom. And as we consider our response to this, it should be one of worship and faith and love to our king, I want us to end our time by reading Psalm 2. So you can turn there. This psalm perfectly declares the reign of God and the anointing of his son as king. And as I read it, think of our passage in John, and then think of the future, uh, where we are going to see him in his kingdom as it's established. And this should motivate us to Trust him and to follow him today. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like a potter's vessel." So now, O king, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your plan which nothing can thwart. We are thankful as we look at your king and how he suffered for us to redeem a people that will praise him and serve him and bring you glory. And we ask, Lord, that this would move us to be faithful to him, that we would abound in gratefulness for what you have done and that we would be motivated to serve him with all of our hearts and to love him. And it's in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.